pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. He's Jeff Conine. I'm Aram Layton, and it is Friday, October 8th. We are into the playoffs. So much to talk about. It's also 8 a.m., and we have not done a recording this early. I am admittedly not a morning guy. Jeff, I'm surprised you're not a morning guy, but we are going to get a little bit more set into the schedule here. And can you talk about why you hate mornings? I feel like you'd be the guy that gets after it at like 6 a.m. Never. Are you kidding me? I'm a baseball player. But your, your day game averages were great. I'm still a baseball player. That's the night. Uh, I, I guess I hit better when I was a little tired. Maybe <laughs> that was, but I, I continue that baseball lifestyle the rest of my retired life because I worked for the Marlins after I was done. And part of my job was to go to the games at night. So I wouldn't get home till 1130 every night and you're wired up a little bit. You don't wake up till late in the morning. So I've never been an early morning person. <laughs> Neither have I for other reasons. I've just never been able to get into that habit, but we're going to do it and we're doing it right now. And we had a crazy uh, on the just baseball show as well. We did an interview or we did an episode after that wild card game. And there was just so much going on in that Dodgers Cardinals wild card game. It was a blast, but it ended right around one in the morning. And then we recorded and that was also a little bit different, but I wanted to just start with that. We're obviously going to talk a lot about the postseason. I want to get a lot of your just experience, your thoughts on a lot of these different things that have just, I realized you never had a one game playoff. You had just the wild card team. So I want to talk about just the winner take all games. That's something that's really fascinating to me. And I also want to start with just the Wainwright versus Scherzer matchup. That was so much fun. Both guys don't go as deep as maybe you would have hoped. I would say Wainwright went as deep as he possibly could. Scherzer gets pulled a little early, did not want to come out at all. And uh, it was a questionable decision by a lot of people's standards, but it ended up working out because the Dodgers didn't give up another run. Uh, What a game. Dodgers end up winning on a walk-off homer. I just want to get your thoughts and just kind of leave the floor to you on Wayno and Scherzer and the way those two guys battled. It was just so much fun to watch. Well, it was billed uh, as an epic showdown, and that's what we got. It was uh, Wainwright, who's now a crafty pitcher. This guy can pitch, flat-out pitch. He throws 90 miles an hour with a great curveball. Uh, and you could see, and I told you this, didn't I, that I thought that he would give the Dodgers a lot of fits just because they're used to high velo guys. I think, I think that team is geared to, um, batting against these 
big arms that uh, we see nowadays and they're more successful against those guys where Wainwright just knew how to carve them up. And that's exactly what we saw. It was a, it was a battle of epic proportions and you, you got the other guy on the other side, another veteran Scherzer who is still throwing 95, 96 miles an hour. And he didn't have his great stuff. He had control issues. Um, I thought he was not in the strike zone as much as we've seen Scherzer. Um, and he did have two poor starts at the very end of the regular season. He gave up 10 earned runs and two starts. So uh, after going just absolutely lights out when he, after the trade to the Dodgers and that's how good he is when he doesn't have his best stuff, he can still keep one of the hottest teams in baseball in check uh, for five innings. And well, then you hand it over to that Dodgers bullpen and we all know uh, what kind of arms they have sitting down there. It's just a joke. I mean, it's an absolute joke what these guys are throwing nowadays, the velocity they're carrying, the movement on their baseball training is just throwing wiffle balls at that was, that was the, 99 miles an hour. It's a joke. That's the guy I had to ask you about. Cause I was like, but how does anybody, I, when I see Blake trying I'm, I'm expecting 0.00 ERA, 0.00 whip, because it actually is a wiffle ball. How does anybody hit that guy ever? I don't understand it. I don't either. I don't either. It's, I guess he makes a mistake every once in a while and, and people don't miss uh, because most of his pitches are, are so ridiculous from the center field camera anyway. I mean, sometimes those angles are a little bit uh, deceiving and they'll, they'll give you a little bit uh, more perspective on a ball that's moving. Uh, it gives more movement to a ball on, especially on a right-handed pitcher where lefties, when you see from the center field camera, that looks like they're not moving at all because the angle is always this way. And the lefty pitch runs this way and it looks like it's pretty straight, but so um, there's a little bit of deception there as far as camera angles are concerned, but still uh, when you look at his ball compared to everybody else's, it's just, it's, I would be a nightmare for a right-handed hitter. <laughs> it's the new turbo sinker slider thing that just is, is unfair uh, in so many ways. But I, I also wanted to talk just real quick before we move on to the larger playoff picture and uh, some of your experience in the postseason is how does 88 to 90 play? the way it did for Wayno. Of course, the curveball works at 73 and that pitch is just special. It is basically his bread and butter now, but we were seeing him get 88 on the hands of right-handed hitters. And like you said, you called it that this Dodgers team would have trouble with Wayno, and, and he was fantastic. He gave them a chance. They got to score more than one run to win anyways. And I was just shocked at how 88 was getting in on the hands of these right-handed hitters for the Dodgers who, you know, make a living on just demolishing pitches middle in. Well, see, that's, that's as a hitter, you're preparing for what you're getting that night. So Wainwright's top end, uh, like you just said, is 90 miles an hour. So I have to be ready for a 90 mile an hour fastball as a hitter, because that's the fastest pitch I'm going to see. So you look at his off speed curveball could be in the seventies, high spin rate curveball in the seventies. Now you look at the spread between that and the fastball is almost 20 miles an hour at some pitches. So, um, it's really no different than if I'm ready for a 97 mile an hour fastball and I've got a guy throwing an 83 mile an hour changeup. That's my spread that I have to be ready for where Wainwright, all right, I'm ready for 90 and that's my top end with him. So he's just a master at changing speeds, keeping guys off balance, 
uh, location, you know, because you can't sit on uh, a pitch in any certain zone at any time because he can throw it anywhere. He can pinpoint it anywhere. So um, it's just a matter of perspective. And when you shift down, even though it's not high velo, you're shifting down with that range that he has of off-speed pitches to his fastball. It, keep guy, it keeps guys off balance. It's just so amazing to me because, you know, I saw guys throwing 88 and it's just you you think, okay that's the same, but it's so different. It's a different game. And and the fact that Wainwright's able to do that, he's coming back for another year, too. We speculated that that would be the case. Him and Yachty, one more year each. Hopefully the Cardinals can get back in the playoffs. Also, we almost had a pinch hit walk off homer by Albert Pujols. He just missed that ball. I don't even think he missed it. I think he got too much of it. Honestly, it just didn't get up in the air enough. It's like 106 miles an hour off the bat. I always thought it was interesting when they burn a pinch hitter just to get the other reliever in and then put another pinch hitter in. But the Dodgers had that liberty carrying 16 position players for the wild card game. As you talked about, they have so many arms in the stable. They had all the confidence in the world to be able to go pick up and and carry a ton of bats. But I was so happy to see that Wainwright Scherzer matchup was unfortunate that the Cardinals had to go down, but now we get Cardinals or excuse me, Dodgers giants, which is what we wanted all along. And this is going to be a lot of fun. Can you talk a little bit about rivalry games in the postseason? Because that series all year long was must see TV. We've talked, we talked about the Dodgers and giants several occasions on this podcast. And now we have the pinnacle of it. It's, you know, win or go home five game series between two rivals, a 107 game winner, a 106 game winner, which I've also never seen uh, in the same division. I'm sure you could probably recall one or two times. Maybe something was close to that. But can you talk a little bit about a rivalry series? I know we've seen some Yankees, Red Sox in the past, but have you been a part of a rivalry series going into the postseason or a team that you didn't particularly like during the regular season? And now you face off in a basically situation where you've got to face them every day for more than a week. Yeah. You know what? It's uh, being with the Marlins early on. We didn't really have any rivals uh, (laughs) because we were a a team. (laughs) So I guess you'd say we we had regional rivals in the Atlanta Braves is because basically that was the closest team to Florida. So a lot of people in Florida were Braves fans. And, uh, you know, we beat them in the NLCS in 1997. So that's as close as I've come to like a rivalry series in the postseason. I've only been to two, but that's as close as I've, as I've, as I've come. Um, when you look at the Dodgers Giants, that is a bitter rivalry. I mean, we're talking about fans getting brawls yeah. at each other's stadiums just because of their wearing the other person's jersey. I mean, that's how that's how uh, intense it is with these two teams. And now we look at 107 versus 106, which has never happened before. This is the most combined wins ever in a postseason baseball series in the history of the game of baseball. It's like crazy. We've never seen this before. So um, it's going to be electric. You got two teams that are at the top of the categories that we expect them to be at going to the postseason with that many wins, pitching uh, home runs, offense, whip. I mean, they're top five and everything. So it's going to be a battle Royale. And like you said, it's must see TV. 
So I have one question for you on the roster side of things, because both teams are missing very important players. But the one thing that you have highlighted all year long is the balance. Of course, the Dodgers just have everybody. They're they're just loaded. The the Giants have balance throughout their lineup, and they're going to need to rely on that because Brandon Belt unfortunately broke his thumb bunting. And that sucks. I, I hope it was a bunt that he put on himself because I'll be even more I was mad. Say, if, why is Brandon Belt bunting? Yeah, I'm hoping that he was just trying to beat the shift or something. And unfortunately, it was a pitch that got in on his hands. But Brandon Belt should never be bunting, especially the way he's been hitting right now. And if you look at WRC Plus, which is essentially always coincides with OPS and, and a lot of the other offensive numbers, basically aggregates all of them. He is number three in baseball since the start of the 2020 season. It basically sandwiched between, I don't have it in front of me, but the, the other four players on that top five list are Bryce Harper, Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis, and you name any other superstar. Vlad Guerrero Jr. was six. Uh, so it was basically all of the best hitters. And then Brandon Belt. He had less at-bats by about 150, uh, but you're talking about enough of a sample size here from the start to 2020 that this guy is very important. How much does it affect a team to lose one player? Because the Dodgers lose Max Muncy, but the Dodgers are the Dodgers. The Giants are loaded, and they have guys that can replace that production. Darren Ruff can step in. Lamont Wade can step in. But it's not the same as having one player that's been there and won two championships, right? How much should Giants fans be concerned about missing one player given that they're so balanced across the board, but this was their most productive player by uh, a macro scale. Well, when you look at why the Giants are there, you said that they're balanced for one. In that lineup, it's amazing how they've spread out their production from top to bottom. And another reason the Giants are there is that clubhouse. I think they've got an amazing culture there. They've got an amazing clubhouse. Gabe Kapler has really cultivated that into something special. And that's going to come to their benefit. So, yes, they lost Brandon Belt. But I think this team will rally behind that and say, you know what? All right, we lost one of our hottest hitters, one of our most productive players. But we can kind of balance that out with our lineup. We're going to, we're going to compensate for that and find a way to score runs. So I think they're, I think they're going to be fine. Max Muncy, I think might be a a bigger uh, blow to a lineup uh, with the Dodgers than belt is to the giants, just because of the composition of their teams. Uh, When I was with the Florida Marlins early on the first series, we lost uh, Alex Fernandez, our arguably our best starter for the entire season that year. We lost him to a shoulder injury and didn't have him for the NLCS or the World Series. And we still won because that team was similar to the Giants right now. It was very balanced. We had depth in our pitching rotation. We had guys that stepped up and took those innings that Alex Fernandez dominated for the entire year and gave us productive, usable innings. And then our offense took over and we won that series. So a uh, very similar situation. Yeah. When you have that balance across the board, you almost have that hope that somebody could step up from another department, whether it's the bullpen shouldering more innings, whether it's the the offense taking over or a new starter stepping in. So I I think that's a really good point. And both teams have the ability to do that, which is going to make it really fun. But Muncie, too, really unfortunate because he's been really their best offensive player as well overall. And one of those fluke injuries at first base, and I'm sure it was like your, your worst nightmare when you have a throw, go up the line and you got to make the grab, but the guys getting there, the base runners getting there at the same time. And they collide with your arm. Muncie actually popped his elbow out and they had to pop it back in. Fortunately, didn't tear his UCL. 
I don't know how, but he fortunately didn't. That gives him an outside shot at returning. But that's probably the scariest part of first base, right? <laughs> Is when you're getting one up up the line and you got to make the decision in about half of a second. Am I going to catch this thing and pray? Uh, or do I just kind of let it go? Uh, I don't know how many times you've had to make that decision, but you know, Muncie made it. And uh, unfortunately it, it ended up with his elbow hanging. Yeah. I mean, I probably made that decision. I don't know, a hundred times I played 900 games at first base. So um, that is like you said, a split to second, second decision. You've got to realize that that throw as soon as the it's left the fielder's hand is going to go up the line. Do I come off the bag and try to make a sweep tag? Do I stay on the bag and try to make this play? Um, it's a tough, like, like you said, last minute decision. And unfortunately you you've seen it and we've seen it. Uh, I've never been injured that way uh, at first base. I know people that have Cliff Floyd uh, was with the Montreal Expos and just dislocated his wrist actually oh. going for the exact same ball. So um, it is unfortunate, you know, you wish both teams were at full strength going to the postseason because that's what got them there. You know, that's what a big reason for those 107, 106 wins are those two guys. Um, but injuries happen. And uh, unfortunately for those two teams, both of them happen super late and they're going to be out. I don't see Max Muncy coming back from this during the playoffs. It just seems too difficult. It, it really does. Especially, like, how do you hit with, with an elbow? That's not right. It just doesn't seem to make sense. And I mean, I, I hope we're wrong on that one, but, but I'm with you. I, I don't really, I don't really see how it can happen. Uh, going- the only thing, the only thing with Mac Muncy, it's his top hand. Um, and he can possibly release that uh, as he goes through the zone, but that's still, that's a tough one to overcome in such a short period of time. Especially when you're adapting your swing a little bit, right? Like that's the same thing I'm thinking with Brandon Belt is it's that, it's that top hand thumb. Like, how do you, how do you swing that? You can't, that, that's taken on all of it, right? That's taken on all the impacts. I don't know how you can really do that without the thumb. So I, I'm hoping that these guys, I mean, they're freak athletes and hopefully they can, they can make some sort of uh, recovery a little bit quicker than what we're used to. But uh, it, it seems to be like the odds are stacked against them. Uh, the other thing that I had to ask you about is the trop. The trop struck again. And I found something out new about the trop. And can you believe, by the way, and I feel like half of this every once in a while, I just got to fit in like a Jeff. Can you believe what people are mad at me about? This is the new. Can you believe what a couple people were <laughs> mad at me about? I just said. And, and I took a picture of the television because I had no idea this was ever a thing. Did you see the whole ring A, ring B, ring C, ring D explanation? Yes, I did see that. Holy crap. If you have to explain the what is in play and what each part of the roof that impedes the game means... Like, oh, if this part of the roof impedes the game, then it's then it's a single or, or it's uh, no, whatever they were deciding. I didn't even give it the light of day. But if it hits either ring C or ring D, including lights and fair territory, it's a home run. If it's caught in play off of ring A or ring B, it can be an out. What? This is the craziest thing ever. And so I said, you know, imagine explaining this to somebody that's never played baseball before. Like, oh, you can play it off the roof or if it hits this part of the roof, it's a home run. And people are like, oh, it's just one of the quirks of baseball. Uh, Why don't you lighten up a little bit? I'm like, I'll I'll lighten up. I'm cool with the green. Like people were comparing it to the green monster and like, oh, it's just a quirk of baseball. I think it's so different. 
I know Nelson Cruz's ball, thank goodness, was pulverized. So we, there wasn't much question about it. But like if this comes into effect and comes into play in a big spot, it's going to be such a bad look. Yeah, there's no way a, a stadium should affect the outcome of a game. I mean, uh, and those rules have changed over the years. When I played at, at tr- the Trop way back when, uh, I can't remember how they've changed over the years, but A and B was a different set of rules back then. And I know, I know they've changed and evolved uh, over the years. So now C and D are automatic home runs, A and B or blah, blah, blah. I mean, uh, a stadium roof should not impact, especially a playoff game. Are you kidding me? It's like, why on earth? Um, and then, I mean, you can't take them down. They're, they're like structurally <laughs> integrated into the stadium. You can't, there's nothing you can do about it other than implode the trop and, and build a new stadium, which probably not going to happen anytime soon. So we got to live with it. Unfortunately, I think it's ridiculous as well. Um, and it's, uh, something that should not be allowed in baseball to happen is to, for the stadium to affect a game. It's, it's out, it's out of, out of the, I just don't understand. It, it makes me speechless sometimes, but speaking of the game itself, that's the part that's, it's the amazing juxtaposition of the fact that the, the talent on the field, the quality of play on the field is fantastic. The field itself sucks. Uh, the Rays just played a perfect game of baseball yesterday. They're as close as you can. I mean, they, they shut out the, they shut out the Red Sox. They basically did everything they needed to do at the plate. They strung together hits. They made good decisions on the base paths. They made aggressively good decisions on the base paths. Randy Rosarena caught a Red Sox reliever sleeping a lefty, of course, and which is the only time that you can see a home. And I loved that. We talk about some like old school baseball. That's some old school baseball. He caught him sleeping and he took off and he stole home. That fired me up. That that just, Mm. that's the kind of stuff that I love to see. I don't know if you ever thought about stealing home in your career and how many times you saw somebody do that. But I mean, that was a lot of fun. Well, there's a difference between stealing home and like a straight steal of home. So there's a first and third offense play that uh, mm-hmm. every team has. And sometimes, you know, you'll get the throw down to second base and the, and the runner from third scores. And I'm sure I might have done that maybe once in my career, but I get a steal of home on that play, which is not what we saw last night. We're talking about old school. Like you said, I'm going to time this up because, and I wonder if it it came from the bench, like, Hey, uh, if you get on third base, if anybody gets on third base, I don't know if this was in their pregame meeting that this reliever in particular takes a long time to get home. He does not check or uh, he falls into a pattern, which as base runners, that's what we look for. We look for patterns as far as stealing bases, even me who had average speed, I could steal bases off guys that would fall into these patterns and I'd time it and I'd take off. So I wonder if a Rose, uh, a Rosarena did this on his own at that time. Like, Hey, this guy is taking too long. He's not paying attention to me. I, I can get this. Or if it had been talked about prior to, and th- against this specific reliever, we've got a chance to steal him. And but it was, it's the most exciting play in baseball. There's nothing that even rivals that play right there. No, no, not at all. And it was Josh Taylor who just fell asleep on the mound and a Rosarena can fly. He can fly. And we saw that. And he was the hero last postseason. It seems like he takes his game up to another level in the postseason. He had a good year this year. Came on strong in the second half. He had a decent year this year, but he's got 11 postseason home runs. Yeah. 11. And he had 20 home runs in the entire season this year. Exactly. Exactly. So to those standards, not quite what, what 
he does in the postseason. But the ball he hit out also was was absolute. I thought it was going to get catwalked as well, uh, but it was able to be a clear home. I think it went over. Didn't it go over one of the I catwalks? Think it went and over, it I think I think it went over the catwalk. So thank goodness for that. Uh, but one last player in this series I really wanted to talk about is, is Wander Franco. Because Wander Franco, we talk about prospects and we talked about him with the expectations. And I, by the way, Kevin Cash had an in-game interview, which I, I think the in-game interviews are a little bit crazy. But Kevin Cash was maybe the first interview I've ever watched from these managers where something was actually said. Like it was actually right. just substance. <laughs> he was saying things that I actually was enjoying, not just the coach speak. And I can understand the coach speak. You're in a game, you're 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 focused, and I'm not holding that against him. But I loved what Kevin Cash was saying. He was really engaging and, and really interesting. And he said, I, I've never seen a player with this kind of hype come up here and the way he's carried himself, the way he's played and the way he's somehow met that absurd hype has been incredible to watch. And we're talking about a guy that is the antithesis of what we see in the modern hitter. He hits for power, but not at the expense of contact. He strikes out as, as little as anybody in baseball, 6% K rate over his hot stretch going into the postseason switch hitter plays a great shortstop that ball. He hit early in the ball game. It was a line shot that almost, I think it bounced about 15 feet beyond the infield and almost beat both outfielders in the gap because it was hit so hard. I can't, I can't stop watching this guy. I know that you haven't seen as much of him, but this was one of your first chances to really watch him full at bats, see what he's doing. What impressed you about Wander Franco, this switch hitting 20 year old shortstop for the Rays? Well, you just said it 20 years old. I mean, this guy's 20 years old and he's doing things that we haven't seen uh, in a lot of years. I mean, Ken Griffey was 19 when he came up and, and did some pretty special things. Uh, A-Rod was 20 when he came up and did some pretty special things. That's the kind of player we're looking at right now, kind of on a different scale because those two, those two guys were massive power guys, but this guy is a complete ball player. He can do everything well. Uh, and as you said, I don't know what his uh, on base streak was uh, when he came up, but it was in the 40 or 50 game range. And you're talking about a rookie that comes up into the big leagues. Uh, and like you said, the hype, he was the number one or number two prospect in all of baseball. All eyes were on him. He comes up to the big leagues and delivers on exactly what the hype was all about. And he, he showcased it last night, two doubles in his first two at bats. The first time in history that a rookie had two extra base hits in his first two postseason at bats. So this guy lives up to the hype. I think he enjoys have that spotlight shining on him. No no matter where he is on defense, offense, he's like, hey, guys, climb on. Even though I'm only 20 years old, I'm going to take you to the promised land. So I know that it was a little bit different in 03, but did Miguel Cabrera have that kind of hype coming up? I, is, is it any comp like is there any comparison to the kind of hype that Miggy had in terms of his prospect of allure or was he more of just somebody that internally was known but not as much of that overhyped or not overhyped but just super hyped up prospects well you gotta think back then we had no social media so there was no way that any player back then could be as hyped up as what we've got now with prospect reports, lists coming out every single day. There's watches like this is what this prospect did every single day. Miggy was known in the organization as, yeah, this guy has potential to be a superstar just because of what he had done and what our people <clears throat> had had witnessed. And of course, you've got other scouts that uh, the internal talk in baseball was that Miggy was going to be a special player, but he didn't have near the hype that this guy had. There's no pressure on him coming up because 
Uh, and it was very, they're very similar. You know, Miggy came up at 20 years old uh, and kind of just plays like any other game that he's ever played in. He didn't realize that he was in the playoffs, didn't realize that he was in the postseason uh, on the biggest stage. He just said, this is my job. I put on a uniform. I go out there and I hit a baseball. And that's what he did. And it seems like Franco has that same attitude, which is really interesting. It just seems that you you can almost see it in the way that he plays. It doesn't seem like it's it's a, a different game for him. It's the same game. It's just baseball and the setting is a little bit different, but the field is the same and that's all he cares about. I want to talk about now your experience in the postseason because there's a lot of different things that we could go to there. Uh, You never had the one game wild card uh, experience where both times you won the World Series, you were a wild card team, but back then there was no wild card game. It was a wild card team that went in and played uh, the team that was what the number one seed uh, in the, in the NL both occasions. And you're able to beat them. What do you think of the wild card game and where it's one game winner take all for viewership? It's great. 7.7 million most viewed ESPN game in a very long time uh, with that Yankees Red Sox matchup. The ratings were great on the Dodgers Cardinals as well, but there's a level of anything can happen in one game. And do you really feel like the best team is advancing in this occasion? I think both times, I mean, I would say the Yankees maybe are better than the Red Sox, but that's a toss up. If either team won in a five game series, I wouldn't have batted an eye Cardinals Dodgers, the Cardinals pulled that off in one game. I would have been excited, but it'd be pretty hard to justify the Dodgers winning 106 games and then losing in one game to to end their season. I'm not saying change the rules at this point, but based on your experience in the postseason, what are your thoughts on on the wild card game? And then I want to just talk about your experience in those winner take all games and, and what those are like. Well, you know, that uh, it's almost like a made for TV game. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, it's a shame to go through a 162 game season and do the damage and um, have the season that the Dodgers did with the unfortunate coincidence that the team in your division was one game better. So when you look at uh it is a shame. It is a shame, but it is compelling TV. Like you said, fans tune in for that one game, do or do or die game. Uh, but the fan bases of the other teams would be crushed if the Dodgers weren't able to make the playoffs after that season. Are you kidding me? And losing to a, a St. Louis team, which got hot as heck going down the stretch and they made it in the playoffs. Yeah, they deserve possibly to be there. But, you know, it was just a way for baseball to keep all the races interesting and to keep teams playing hard to the very end. And it was probably a function of going through the three division format in each league uh, to include another team to get in there. Um, I don't know. I kind of like it. And when you get into the postseason, it's all about the hottest team, not the best team. So um, it's it, it makes for great TV. It makes for great TV. Like you said, uh, Yankees, Red Sox in a one game playoff. What better TV than that? Exactly. Exactly. And I wish the game was a little bit better, but it, it was fun because I thought that there was a microcosm in that game of, of just where baseball is at and what really matters. And kind of the issue with the Yankees is Stanton had a phenomenal game, hit the wall twice, uh, just pulverized baseballs uh, in almost every at bat. 
but they had an opportunity to get back into the ball game. Stanton crushes one that would be gone. I think anywhere on the planet, uh, but unfortunately uh, it was on a line and hit the deepest part of the park on the walls. 400 feet was the projected distance that I don't understand that. Cause that was obviously further than 400 feet and it was 114 something miles per hour off the bat. They don't have any runs to show for it, which shows you can hit the ball as hard as you possibly can. And sometimes nothing, you have nothing to show for it over-aggressive base running. Phil Nevin waves him around, a waves judge around. And the Red Sox cut down a run with a perfect relay. It was a perfect relay. And it shows you the little things sometimes can be just as important as the, the bigger things like hitting a bomb. They save a run with a perfect relay. And uh, that was a, a really cool microcosm, I think, of you know what can win ball games. And while the Red Sox defense wasn't great this year, it came up in big spots, and that was a perfect example. The Rays are a good example of a team that does all the little things as well. When you talk about you know these winner-take-all games and that you like them, that makes me happy because some people are a little torn on them. I enjoy it. It's just this was one of those weird situations where, I mean, how often are you going to have a 106-win team in the wild card? We might never see it again. But what I liked about it, too, is it forced both teams that were well clinched early, uh, at least for a postseason spot, to have to keep playing down the stretch in the regular season and keep pushing. And that's what I liked about the Dodgers-Giants situation, because once you have 100 wins, you don't really have to focus that hard on the last week. It usually doesn't matter that much. And uh, both those teams had to go and keep going and keep going. And, and the Giants were able to edge them out. Uh, with your postseason experience now, you had a couple winner-take-all games. Uh, can you talk about what that's like? Obviously, it wasn't the one-game playoff, but at the end of the day, it's all the same when you get into that final game, game seven, game five, whatever it is, or you're facing elimination, but more so on the winner-take-all front. What are those games like when you're preparing for that? You mentioned Miguel Cabrera treating every game like it was the same. It's kind of hard to do that when it doesn't feel like the game is the same and the fans aren't treating it like just another game either. Well, when you get the postseason, I mean, every single game is 10 times bigger than any post or any regular season game that you're going to play. So I think when you're preparing for those games, you get out there, especially game number one uh, of the playoffs or game one of every series, you've got that adrenaline like you're not going to see in any other game during the regular season because it is game one. It's a packed house. They got the whole pomp and cir circumstance. They got the bunting everywhere. They've got the flyovers. So that kind of game one energy is like off the charts, but once you get into game one, once the first pitch is thrown and all the flashbulbs go off and all this stuff settles down, it becomes a baseball game. And I think the, the best players and the best teams treat that as a baseball game. They get into it and now I'm in my element and that's what I'm doing. And I view that as a winner take all game, kind of the same. I mean, you go in there thinking, all right, this is do or die. This is winner take all. Everyone's fired up. The fans are fired up. And then when you get in between those lines, that's when kind of, everything else kind of quiets down. And now I focus on the business at hand and the best teams are the best at doing that, quieting that stuff off the field, outside the lines, the crowd, the hype, all that, and focusing on the task at hand. And those are the teams that advance when they, when they treat that the best um, in our games, you know, we had a game seven, obviously in, in game number uh, in the first year in 97 uh, with the world series um, you know, you're talking about, <laughs> 
crazy extra innings in game seven of the world series. You know, don't you set that situation up? And when you're a kid is like, uh, you uh, you want to be the guy at the plate to, to knock in the winning run and the extra innings of the game seven of the world series. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that, but you know, as those games go along and it gets later in those games, that, that tension kind of creeps back in because you know, we got a tie ball game in the ninth inning and this is it. Whoever scores here is going to win. And that's a lot to take on mentally and physically. Be honest. Do you want to get up in that situation? <laughs> Do you want to be up in the biggest spot there in extra innings and the bottom of the ninth or the 11th or whatever it may be? Because what I thought was interesting when I watched that 1986 Mets documentary was when they were up with their backs against the wall and in that of course, game where where they come back and they beat uh, the the Red Sox on the on the Buckner boot. They were all saying each individual player, "I'm not making the damn last out." That, that's what they all said the second they got to first base. Nobody wants to make that last out. Do you want to get up in that situation? I I know that the competitor in us wants to say that, but also it's it's pretty freaky. It's pretty scary. It is pretty scary. Um, but you have to want to do it. You have to want to be up there or else you're not going to succeed. I mean, there's no way that you can go up there saying, I don't want to be here right now. Baseball is hard enough as it is, uh, as a, a skill hitting a baseball. And if your mind isn't into it, if your body isn't into it, your heart isn't into it, you're not going to be successful. So you have to, ha- the athlete in you has to take over and says, yes, I want to be up in this. Maybe not want to be in the, up in this situation, but when I get there, I know, how to do my job. And I know this is what I'm trained to do and try to block out everything else. Because when you focus on results, that's going to affect your at bat hundred percent. Well, in that big game at home in 03 against the giants, did you want that ball hit to you? <laughs> Cause that was a hard play. We've talked about that play in the past. You caught it on a short hop. You had to make a tough decision as to whether you're going to try to catch it on a fly last second pulled up. That's like an outfielder's nightmare is those tweener balls that you don't quite know. And you had JT Snow rolling around third quite slowly, but but making his way to home. And it had to be a good throw. Like Those are the situations, too, that you kind of dream of is getting the big play, making the big play to win the game. But that couldn't have been more of a difficult situation <laughs> to try to unfold to, to make that final out. That is a situation where you step up and make the big play. But even in that spot, there had to have been a moment, right, where you're like, oh, shit, where you pull up and you catch it on a short hop, because even if that eats you up a little bit, you bobble it, he's he might be safe. And that's all the difference. It doesn't even have to get by you. Well, I thought it was going to be safe anyway. I just in my mind, that play took so long to develop that. And it felt like I had so long to run to get to the ball when it checked up like that. I thought to myself, all right, well, I, I got the checkup and I'm just going to hit my cutoff, man, because as an outfielder, that's my job to hit my cutoff, man. And <clears throat> I think that I didn't know that I had a shot at him. So I think just going through the mechanics of feeling that baseball, transferring it to my hand, when I finally turned around to look, I mean, I saw where he was and I'm like, Oh my God, we got to definitely have a shot at him right now. So I just said, I got to get a good throw to Pudge. And, and when I saw the ball in the air, it's like everything just kind of slowed down and I'm just, everything got quiet in my mind. Everything's quiet. And I'm just watching the ball sail through the air and I knew he was going to get a long hop. And I just knew right then I said to myself, just hang on. Cause I knew there's going to be a collision. I knew this was the last out of possibly the entire series. And 
that's what happened. And, and then like, you know, you see those as it's on TV or in the movies when it slows down, then all of a sudden it speeds back up to normal life. That's exactly what happened in my mind. It that, that's, it's incredible. And also the, the football stadium filled with fans for a baseball game. I mean, it, it had to have been surreal. I always say I would, I would kill to have been there. I was six years old. Uh, you guys were just a little bit too early uh, on that second world series title for me, but uh We'll see if I'll ever get one of those again uh, for my favorite baseball team uh, that I supported growing up. But the other thing that we had to talk about that we've been talking about for a little bit, and I want to get your thoughts because this is something that I was when we've talked about this off the air, I was surprised by the, I guess, just the description of the situation, because I really didn't know what to expect uh, when asking you about that Cubs game, the infamous Cubs game, uh, where you make the comeback. The 2003 Marlins make the comeback in game six of the NLCS. You were losing 3-0, and we're losing the series. Uh, If you lose that game, it's over. And Mark Pryor was shoving. And I mean, Mark Pryor, when at his peak, he he dealt with injuries and and shortened his career, unfortunately, but he was fantastic. And in that outing, no different was just fantastic. Had only given up three hits and no runs going into the eighth inning. And it was three zero in that eighth inning. And then of course, uh, the rest is is infamy uh, in that situation there where you all are able to string together so many hits and end up making that game pretty ugly. It was 8-3 by the end of that inning, which is just absurd. I, I would have felt like that game is over if I'm watching that in, in real time, given that it's the eighth inning, you're down 3-0, the Cubs look like they're finally going to do it. Uh, they're at home. Mark Pryor's shoving, and it just doesn't all work out that way. There's a million things that went right for you all to win that game but people point towards that infamous Steve Bartman moment as the first domino there because nobody was on at that point right if I'm not mistaken and it was almost like a I I can't remember I, I actually can't but that doesn't totally matter it's more so just how that gave you a second chance at the plate for the for your team and then what happened from there um, I don't think anybody was on, uh, Luis Castillo is up to the plate and is, you know, th- this guy could battle with the best of them as far as fouling pitches off and, and making contact. So I'm in the dugout, you know, toward the end of the dugout and I see him hit this pop fly and I'm like watching it come down. And, you know, regardless of what Moises Lou and all the interviews said about not having a chance to catch, he had a chance to catch that ball. It was definitely going to be in play far enough to let him get a glove on it. And you see this guy just stick his hand out there and clank it. And, and we're all like in disbelief, like, wait, what just happened right there? And we literally at that point turned to each other and said, let's make him famous, boys. Let's make him famous. The, the fan that did that, we said at that point in the dugout, let's make him famous. And 15 minutes later, we're up eight to three. I mean, it was a barrage. Like, I don't know if that just kind of secretly gave us this jolt of energy inside, because like you said, Mark Pryor was dominating. He had five outs. No, I'm sorry. It was one out. There was one out of that inning. So at, from that point on, there was, there was one out. So we did all that damage with one out. 
And uh, because I remember he had five outs to go to seal that game for the, the Cubs and he was absolutely dominating and one of the best pitchers in baseball that year and for a couple of years until the injury happened. But uh, we said, let's make him famous. And it was a string of things that were just I mean, we, it, there was lightning bolts coming out of our dugout. We had so much energy in there. It was crazy. But what was amazing to me about the way you tell the story, because it was something that I thought, okay, maybe it's, it's not as big of a deal to the guys on the field. And they were looking at it more of a situation where, okay, we got another chance. Let's, let's keep playing ball. But it felt like that from the way you describe it as a big tide turning point where you're like, oh, we got another sign of life here and we've got our best contact guy up. He's going to get a hit and we're going to string it all together. Uh, unfortunately for Steve Bartman, you all made him famous. Chicago media villainized him. And, and that was the difference. I mean, it wasn't his fault that a subsequent eight runs were scored. A shorthanded shortstop booted it. Mark Pryor hits a wall. All of these things happen. That is on the Cubs. And I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I bet you the Cubs would would agree with that. And also, there's a lot that goes on to what you guys did. And it's just like credit to the Marlins for putting up eight runs and, and disrupting what was a, a gem. But I always find it interesting that uh, that's all it takes is a little bit of for a team like that. Just the, like you said, the analogy of the door just being pricked open a little bit. And that's all it takes to to be able to bust through there and change everything. And you had to win the next game too, right? So it, it reminds me a little bit of the Buckner situation, except this guy wasn't even on the field. He kind of got into the field a little bit, but Buckner booted that ball. But there were so many things wrong with that situation besides Buckner uh, that allowed them to lose that game and then the subsequent game. So I always found that really, really interesting. Excuse me. Um, But I wanted to just wrap up with one last thought on that. And then, of course, my favorite part where we talk about the jersey, the one thing with that game and how you all were able to do that. What would you like in a situation where you can just string together that many hits? I mean, you said the team did that sometimes, but on that stage, in that environment, how did you do it? Did it feel like no matter who stepped up at the plate that they were going to get a hit at that point? Did it feel like you guys were almost possessed? It did. I mean, um, you know, like you said, Luis Castillo ends up, I think he walked that at bat, gets on base. Miguel Cabrera is coming up next. He hits a two hopper to shortstop. Alex Gonzalez goes to his right and clanked it. It was a double play ball, possibly. You know, it was kind of to his right a little bit. Miguel could run back then. So he may or may not have turned the double play, but it was a double play opportunity. He clanks it. Everybody's safe. And that just piled on even more energy in our dugout and like gave us more hope. So, um, then, you know, Derek Lee comes through with a base hit and I think I had a sacrifice fly and then we scored like five more with two outs. Uh, Mike Mordecai comes off the bench and hits a bases clearing double. I That's mean, what I was going to say. Mike Mordecai. Jack McKeon called him the secret weapon. You know, he's I'm going to I'm going to get my secret weapon up there. And this guy comes up and hits one off the wall. And Mike Mordecai never got to hit because Jack McKeon never used his bench. You know, he never pinch hit. You know, he hardly ever let these guys get at bats. And yet he comes through in a huge situation and gives us even more of a cushion. So that team was special. That run was special because we were down three to one to the Cubs, which arguably was the best team in baseball at that point. Uh, Josh Beckett threw an absolute masterful game in game four 
we're down three, one or game five. So we had to win three in a row against the team with Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor at the top of their rotation, which they were the best one, two punch in baseball that year. And we did it. We didn't look at it that way. We looked at, Hey, we got three to go. Let's take game number one, which we did. We got to that game, which was dire straits all the way along. And then when we win that going into the energy of a game seven against Kerry Wood. Yeah, we were down early in that game, too. Kerry Wood hits a three run home run. Yeah, I'll never and forget that. I don't think I've ever heard a stadium as loud as that moment right there when Kerry Wood hit that bomb. It was just crazy. Beers flying way- everywhere. We found a way to turn that energy around and we end up killing them. I mean, Josh Beckett comes out and throws four and a third of of crazy relief. And we found a way to turn it around offensively and we win that game nine to six. Would you say the lose reaction to that foul ball as well was part of what galvanized you all? Because they're like, oh, if he's that rattled by it, he he must feel like. He was furious that that guy blocked that ball and a chance for him to get out number two. Uh, And then they're only one out away of getting out of that inning. So it definitely was a domino that uh, fell and we took advantage of it. So let's talk about the Jersey. Now I see blue and white piping, I believe greenish, greenish, green, green. Why am I drawing a blank? Who would be green? Yeah, that's green. Oakland. That's it. Oakland. Nope. Montreal. Like, what team is it? And I had to put a piece of tape over because the guy signed it right in uh, eye shot. But... <laughs> okay, Rays. Oh, the old Rays. I don't like that green, by the way. So you have you have painter's tape <laughs> over over the signature, uh, which is great. So it's the old green rate, which I, I don't like that green. I like their jerseys better now, honestly. Um Old Rays, and this is, I'm assuming, same thing around your playing time. Was it er, uh, the early part of your playing time or the later part of your playing time? Uh, Kind of probably mid part of my playing time. Early to mid, I would say. Early to mid. Because I was going to, my first guess was going to be like Wade Boggs at the tail end. Good guess. Good guess. Uh, mm, Rays. Early part of your playing days. That's a good one. I mean, I, the Rays are a team that just never like who's the the Rays guy, like the the classic. It's hard. To, it's hard to, it, they're kind of like the Marlins, you know. Yeah. When they have guys that are really successful, they can't afford them anymore, so they get more guys to replace them. It's like crazy. You don't Except, know these guys. You don't get to know them every year. Except the Rays are fantastic at finding those replacements. I mean, they it's let unbelievable. They let They're Blake the Snell go. They lose Tower Glass now, and and here they are setting a franchise record for wins. Uh, I might have to throw in the towel on this one. I, I'm trying to think, and I can't. I can't come up with one because when I think Rays, I think like Evan Longoria, Carl Crawford, David Price, like 2008. I, I can't. I can't think, but beyond that, with that team. I was on a nice little run. I think I got to throw the towel in on this guy and I'm going to be mad because I know it's going to be somebody that I obviously know. Uh, But yeah, you definitely know him. (sighs) And we've, and we've spoken about him before. Mm. Came back home to play in his hometown for Tampa for Tampa. (sighs) Just, just, just upset me. I'll see if you can recognize the signature. Maybe it's probably not. Oh, is that McGriff? 
Yep. Fred McGriff. Oh, that's a, that's a sweet one. That is a sweet one. The crime okay. dog. I'm and so- he had some big years with Tampa. But I don't think people realize. No. They thought, oh, he just went home and he kind of finished out his career and, and didn't really do much. But he had some three years of over 100 RBIs, 30-plus home runs. And we've talked about this guy. Why in the hell is Fred McGriff not in the Hall of Fame? Why? How is that even possible? 493 home runs and 886 career OPS. I mean, and no slam against Andre Dawson because he believe he belongs in the Hall of Fame as well, but he had an 806 career yeah. OPS. 886 with 493 homers and 1550 RBIs. That's crazy to me that he's not in the Hall of Fame. I just can't believe that. And that's funny that you one of those guys that, you know, never had those monster MVP type seasons uh, to to kind of put those accolades on the resume. But the overall body of work, this guy was as consistent a hitter as as they they came, especially a power guy. Didn't strike out a whole lot. Walked. I mean, 377 on base. Yep. Here's the dumb thing about it. He hits seven more home runs. He's in, right? I mean, back then, yes, 500 was an automatic guarantee into the Hall of Fame. But That's so stupid. It is dumb. <laughs> like, what's the difference? I can understand that if you're 493 that hit 200 or 220 and had a 750 OPS just because all you did was hit home runs. But this guy hit for average. He got on base. I mean, he did it all. He did it all. And uh, what, what was your – you never overlapped with him on the same team – you obviously had to play him a lot because the team I associate him with is that three-year peak that he really had. And peak is the wrong word because, like you said, he was consistently good. He hit 30 home runs as early as 88 and hit 30 home runs as late as 2002. So that's just consistency there. Let's but his, it is three straight years of all-star appearances were 94, 95, 96. So you would have got a lot of him when he was with the Braves, who that's real, who I really associate him with, uh, which right. I think a lot of people do. Uh, what was he like on the field and playing against? And uh, did you have any personal experiences with him? What, what prompted you to get the Rays signature at that point? Because that was, I'm assuming, 98, 99, 2000 when uh, you got that signature, although he did come back one last time in 2004 just for a cup of coffee on his way out for 27 games. Yeah. He was just one of those, uh, those calming, confident, great guys that just uh, was super quiet, but man, could he play baseball? He was a great first baseman. Uh, one of those guys that I hated, like having to hold a runner on with him up to the, up to the plate. Oh yeah. Because I knew he was going to possibly shove one down my throat. Cause he pulled the ball and pulled it with authority. But uh, just one of those guys I admired from across the field because he just went around his business the right way, played the game the right way. Uh, seemed like a great teammate. Every time I talked to him off the field or ran into him on the field, when I got to first base was just a, he's just a great guy. And, and I enjoyed uh, getting to know him just a little bit just by playing against him. And one of the guys that I respected. And at that time, uh, when I started getting the Jersey collection going, I, that's the team he was playing for. So we were going to play him and I bought one and I asked him to sign it for me. I didn't know you, you had a McGriff one in there, but yeah, that's funny because that's one of my main dudes that I'm like, why is this dude not in the hall of fame? Uh, You have to run to practice. And this is Pretty crazy that you got a recording in, you run to practice. So I wanted to just wrap up with a 30-second quick. How's the team looking? How's coaching? I got to go see the facilities at FIU. They're fantastic. Uh, I, I, 
not that I'm surprised. It's a great program, but it is amazing to see what you guys have going on there in terms of facility. Now the coaching staff just got a hell of a lot better with you on it as well as I know you won't say it, but I'll just say it out loud there. That's going to help a lot with this team. Um, Merville Melendez is one hell of a coach. It was nice to meet him and just hear what he had to say uh, about Griffin when he was in the in the cage and just the, the wisdom that he had. Seems like this program's in great hands. The talent seems like it's there from what I've heard and from what we've talked about. How excited are you for this season? We're inching closer. We're still far away, but you're starting to get more into the baseball activities, I guess, uh, right now. Yeah, yesterday was our first uh, inter-squad game, so um, I'm kind of still getting to know the guys. You know, it's been a month, a little over a month since I've had uh, a chance to be working with them. And, you know, people ask me all the time, what's the team look like? And I'm, I'm not sure because I want to get all the starters on the field and get them up to speed. And, you know, it's still early on. They're still taking at-bats uh, off live pitching, and it's, they haven't seen pitches in months so it's hard to judge what we're going to be like, but the talent levels there, um, we got a lot of team speed. we got some good defenders. Um, I think we're going to hit for a little bit of power. Uh, we got some good arms. I mean, this has a potential to be a really good team, but I don't know the competition either. I don't know what Conference USA's competition is going to be like. So it's true. Uh, that is a good point. I'm excited. Um, I, I love our group. we got a bunch of good kids that are working their butts off, and uh, they've been a pleasure to work with so far. So I'm loving it. I'm loving life. It's a good point because the, the college baseball you've been watching has been not only ACC baseball day in and day out with your son, but a team that was one game away from the College World Series multiple occasions. So you've been watching the pinnacle of college baseball, and this is a really good program, but that's a high standard uh, to, to be used to at, at the college level. And, and of course, it's uh, playing at UCLA yourself. You, you saw some really talented players there. So I'll let you get to it. You got to go. Uh, hopefully it's not too hot out there right now, but it's I'm sure it, it's, it's still a little toasty. toasty. I was going to ask you about your classes, but we're going to save that for the next episode. I want to hear right. a little bit about your homework, uh, but go out, get to the field, drive safe and uh, get these guys ready. Base running. It's a lost art. Uh, I, I can't believe I'm saying that because I hated Harping base running, but get these guys base running. They're going to hate me for it. saying that. They looked good I, yesterday. They were running like they had their hair on fire. I like it. Beautiful. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Well, thank you as always. Loaded day for me for postseason games. I'm sure you'll catch the latter ones and uh, I'll be I'll be bothering you with some texts and your thoughts. And uh, we'll reconvene next week uh, with a little bit more of an update on the postseason and some more postseason stories from you. Sounds good, Arm. This was fun.